Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is episode 124 of Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Thank you very much, by the way, for all of the nice comments on last week's episode. Well, most of the comments were nice. You know, there were a few that called me an asshole, but that's, that's par for the course. Anyway, this week, I want to defend multi-camera shows because they are much maligned unfairly in my humble opinion. And so I want to delve into that. And specifically, there was an article that I saw online last week from The New Yorker. And it was an article about the Big Bang Theory, which, of course, ended its 12-year run last Thursday night, getting only 18 million people to watch it. And when you think that, wow, uh, Game of Thrones on HBO, which only a percentage of the audience can even receive, that got 19.3 million people. And The Big Bang Theory is a show that's been on CBS, a national broadcast network for 12 years and is also on syndication and uh, streaming and everywhere else. So you figure, wow, 18 million people is, is still pretty low. I mean, MASH had 106 million. Uh, Cheers had 80.4 million. Uh, Friends had over 52 million for their finales. So uh, anyway, 18 million people. But by the way, I thought uh, it was a a nicely done show. So congratulations to all involved and the Big Bang Theory. Anyway, let me read you what this article in the New Yorker said. On Thursday night, the Big Bang Theory closed out its run with an audience of 18 million viewers. Despite all of the cast changes, Sheldon remained emphatically misanthropic, self-centered, and alienated. In the end, the reason he became kind of a dweeby Fonz has to do with the actual tendencies of the oft-dismissed multi-camera sitcom. Such shows extract sympathy in real time. With a live audience, silence is not an option. If a joke or a scene doesn't land, 
if the real people aren't feeling it, then the writers storm the soundstage and change it. Alienated characters, who are the least likely to garner empathy, require extra attention from the show and therefore often gravitate towards the center of the show. As a result, the viewers come halfway too. It's unlikely that a curmudgeonly Archie Bunker on All in the Family or an uptight Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties will remain detestable for long, even if their creators did set them up to be antagonists. Eventually, audiences saw that Sheldon was as befuddled by the world as they were uncomprehending of his intellectual pursuits. They also learned that he hated change as much as they did, in a way, an outmoded form of television cushioned the anxiety of the brave new tech culture for a generation. Okay, and may I just say, what a crock of shit. Now, I'm going to share my thoughts on the multi-camera format, even though some are going to say that this is just another example of get off my lawn, and others... Uh, especially after my Constance Wu commentary last week, will say I'm a privileged white guy, so I'm not allowed to comment on anything other than USC football. But having done multi-camera shows for over 30 years, shows that have stood the test of time, like Cheers and Frasier, I think my comments and perspective have some weight. Okay, so let's go over some of the points in the letter again. With a live audience, silence is not an option. If a joke or a scene doesn't land, if the real people aren't feeling it, then the writers storm the soundstage and change it. Uh, We'll get into that a little bit later, but that's not entirely true, not for the good shows. Alienated characters who are at least likely to garner empathy require extra attention from writers and therefore often gravitate toward the center of the show. Okay, here's the thing. Characters with flaws are funny characters. And those are the characters that you try to create. Characters that are obsessive, that are vain, that are liars. Those are the characters that are fun to write. But you have to ground them in some reality. And they talk about, well, these detestable antagonists. Like Archie Bunker. No, Archie Bunker was not just an antagonist. He was not just an adversary. Here's the thing about Archie Bunker. And this didn't develop over time. This began day one. Archie Bunker was a man who was terrified. Archie Bunker was a man who was used to the world being a certain way And it was changing underneath him. And he had no idea what was going on. He couldn't reconcile it. He was frightened. 
And so the bigotry and the craziness of Archie Bunker stemmed not from someone who had a black soul, but from someone who was deeply, deeply afraid. Okay? The writers didn't change him because jokes didn't work in front of a studio audience. Now, they also talk about, uh, in addition to Archie Bunker on All in the Family, an uptight Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties will remain uh, detestable for long, will not remain detestable for long, uh, even if the creators did set them up to be antagonists. Okay, Um, did you find that character detestable ever? No, and neither did I. So here's a couple of points I want to make about Alex Keaton and Family Ties. Number one, they found a great actor to play him. They found lightning in a bottle. And number two, and again, you can't stress this enough, he was the only one on that show who was funny. I mean, think back to that family Who else was funny? Michael Gross, the dad, really? Meredith Baxter Burney, lovely actress. She's probably done 120 Lifetime movies. But is she really funny? I mean, what if Meredith Baxter Burney played Elaine on Seinfeld? What if she played Rebecca on Cheers? What if she played Roz on Frasier? Think that would work? No. Again, she's a lovely actress, but she's not that funny. Justine Bateman, not that funny. Tina Yothers, God bless her, not that funny. But they found that Keaton was indeed funny. And so that's what they wrote to. And again, I just never from day one ever thought of him as detestable. I never thought of him as an antagonist. If a character has a different point of view from the parents, does that make him an antagonist? Come on. And then in the article, they go back to the Big Bang Theory And eventually, audiences saw that Sheldon was as befuddled by the world as uh, they were uncomprehending of his intellectual pursuits. That's in the pilot. (laughs) That is in the pilot. And by the way, of Sheldon and Leonard, who was funnier? Who had a funnier, more extreme character? Sheldon, with all due respect of the two actors, who is the better comic actor? Jim Parsons. So it had nothing to do with the fact that they were on a multi-camera show and that the show evolved as a result of it. Okay, enough with the article. Here's the problem with multi-camera shows. Most of them suck. They always have. For every Cheers, there were 10 Blansky's beauties. And when executed poorly, multi-cameras 
are just brutal to watch. The jokes are lame. The acting is over the top. You don't give a shit. And the laugh track is intrusive and offensive. Okay? And it's worse today because there's no real training ground. You know, back when I started, back in the Pleistocene era, you know, you had Jim Brooks. You had the Charles Brothers. You had Gary Marshall. And they mentored young writers. You got on a hit show like the Mary Tyler Moore Show or Taxi or Cheers, and you grew. You worked for a few years. You saw the way they approached the show, and you learned. Well, today it's not like that. And I watch some of these multi-camera shows today that are primarily done by young writers, and it's very clear to me that they're trying to reinvent the wheel. Okay, because they have not had the luxury or the benefit of having somebody who has done this before really walk them through the process. So they're trying to discover it on their own. And needless to say, there's growing pains along the way. So you say, what about Chuck Lorre shows? Well, here's the thing about Chuck Lorre shows. They're all written together in one room. We call it gangbanging. But all of the writers sit around a big table and they write every draft of every script, which is fine and it works well for them, but it does not really service a young writer very well. They don't learn how to write a draft themselves. They don't learn how to work out story problems themselves. They don't have to come up with that big act break joke themselves. They sit at a table and they lob in jokes and someone else decides which ones to use. I mean, look, by the time the Charles brothers did Cheers, they spent years at MTM working for Jim Brooks, being on the Bob Newhart show and Phyllis And then later at Paramount, for three years, they produced Taxi. Once they got Cheers, they were ready. And believe me, I saw that firsthand because David and I, my partner David Isaacs, we came aboard the first year and we had done some multi-camera shows. We did the Tony Randall show and we did a multi-camera pilot. But at that point in our career, primarily we had done single-camera show. We had done four years on MASH. And we were watching those first few months Glenn and Les Charles handle problems expertly and we didn't even know our problems. And we just sat there and thought, wow, we have a lot to learn. So the point is, when they finally got Cheers, they finally got their opportunity, they were ready. So were Peter Casey, David Lee, and David Angel. After spending a number of years being groomed on Cheers, they did Wings, and then they did Frasier. So by the time they did Frasier, they were ready. Phil Rosenthal was ready. Matt Williams was ready. Chuck Lorre was ready. 
Same with Barry Kemp and same with us. You need that training ground and it doesn't exist in today's world. Look, with very rare exceptions like MASH and The Office, practically every classic sitcom over the last 70 years have been a multi-camera show. Isla Lucy, The Honeymooners, Bilko, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Bob Newhart Show, Newhart, Rhoda, All in the Family, Maud, The Jeffersons, Taxi, Cheers, Friends, Frasier, Seinfeld, Everybody Loves Raymond, Mom, The Big Bang Theory, The Cosby Show, Home Improvement, Roseanne, The Odd Couple, Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days, Murphy Brown, Will and Grace, The Golden Girls, One Day at a Time, and of course, Big Wave Daves. Don't dismiss the format because of two broke girls. Now, the author states that the goal is to never have silence. Well, maybe in shitty shows, yeah. But the goal in all of ours was to get the audience to care. If the audience is not invested in the people and their problems, then the show is just a three-dimensional cartoon. You want the show grounded in reality. And it can be very funny, but still real. Ask Neil Simon. He found a way to do it time and time again. We also go for heartfelt moments. But here's the key to that. They have to be earned. Now, Will and Grace would do 25 minutes of burlesque jokes and then a whipsaw turn and some sappy, eggy moment. You don't believe it for a fucking second. Now, there were times on Cheers and on Frasier where we would literally take out big laughs because they got in the way of the emotional moment that we were building towards. And there were not long debates as a result. A big laugh took you out of the moment, bang, it's gone, period. I don't see many shows doing that today. Lots of today's shows feature sex jokes. Now, sex jokes have always been popular. We did plenty of them on every show I ever worked on, but in moderation. And we tried to make the sex jokes elegant and not something that any seventh grader could come up with. Now, lots of these shows now are just all sex jokes. Two and a half men, two broke girls... I tried watching a Two Broke Girls recently. I was on an airplane, and uh, oh, okay, what the heck, I'll check it out. So the show starts with the Cat Denning character late from coming back from her break. So they wonder where she is. They go out into the alley to investigate, only to find that she's fucking some guy in a garbage truck. Ha, ha. This was getting huge laughs. Click. I watched 30 Rock instead, and that is the last time that I saw Two Broke Girls. We worked a lot harder on stories than they do now. 
We look for surprise endings and fun misleads. Storytelling seems less important these days. It was not unusual to watch a Big Bang Theory where the first scene was Sheldon having a problem. In the next scene, he tells Leonard his problem. And then in the next scene, he tells Penny his problem. In the next scene, he tells Howard and Raj. Then the guys at work, and finally the guys at the comic book store. There were jokes in all the scenes, but any or all of them could just be lifted out. Now, if a scene isn't essential and can be easily cut without it affecting the narrative at all, excuse me, but that's lazy storytelling. We never would have stood for that, and I see it all the time now. Again, don't blame the number of cameras. Okay, back to the article. They say writers stop the action and swarm the soundstage to write better jokes. Yes, on some shows, but that comes with a price. You burn out the audience. By the time you get to your Bafo finale, they so don't give a shit. They are so burned out. Okay, shows that do this practice have no faith in their material, and their actors know it. It's like, why bother really learning and rehearsing the script when you know it's going to constantly change in front of the audience? And the ability to come up with jokes on the spot is a fine art that, excuse me, not many can do. How many Mel Brooks are there out there? And the alternative is to prepare a bunch of additional jokes called alts, just in case. And again, that's real faith in your material and actors. And the new laughs are not even good indicators. I'll tell you why. Audiences realize that if they laugh, then the show will finally move on. So they'll laugh not because they thought the new joke was funny, but because they want to get to dinner, for Christ's sake. Now, if we had a good scene and a joke didn't work, we either kept it in because it conveyed some necessary info to move the story forward, and the silent reaction, we would leave, and it would send a message to the home audience that we didn't lay on the laugh machine. Or we just cut the joke. That's it. But we didn't waste a half hour coming up with one new line. If a studio audience is in their seats longer than two hours, even if it is a show that they are dying to attend, they get so bored and cranky, and they want to go home. That is a universal truth. Now, you know what Friends did to combat that? They had two audiences. That's right, one at 4 o'clock and one at 9. And that's fine if you're a beloved mega-hit like Friends. Try that with the neighborhood. Look, there is an art to doing multi-camera shows well, just as there is an art to writing tight one-act plays. It's not the form that's been corrupted. It's that the bar has been so drastically lowered. 
pundits can offer their sagacious opinions that are basically nonsense. But here's the solution. Get better writers. Set your sights higher. And take advantage of the many riches that multi-camera shows have to offer. Case in point, the audience energizes the actors. You get improved performances. The writers are held accountable since their jokes have to work for a room full of strangers. It's not just you and your friends watching dailies and being hysterical. The two most popular genres of television in syndication, and now we're getting into what really matters in Hollywood, and that is money, are these. Procedurals and multi-camera comedies. They're not going away, so why not do them better? And that's my rant for this week. Thank you. So ends another podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Bruce and Jason Miller, Howard Hoffman, and John Wolpert. You can write me at HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, Instagram, Hollywood, and Levine. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Levine.